1964, the city decided when it was clear that the federal laws were going to, you know, require public accommodations to be accessible to all people. They just decided no pool. So they fill the city pool up with sand. And I've shown my kids, there's this nice grassy area out there, but if you were to dig up like a foot, there's a, there are the boundaries, the outline of a pool in there. And if you were to dig up the rest of the sand, the pool is still there. But if we have to integrate, if we have to allow blacks, Hispanics or other people to come, we just won't have a pool. It, it means that much to us. Welcome to On Our Feet, Healing Walks and Talks for Racial Justice. This is a ministry of Trinity United Methodist Church, a joyful community of faith in Germantown, Maryland. The purpose of this podcast is to create space, space for us to share stories and ideas around racial equity, space for us to brainstorm ways to walk for peace and act for justice, and space for us to heal. We invite you to listen and pray while you walk, whether it's through the woods, around the kitchen, or tracing a prayer labyrinth with your finger. Welcome to this space. Come walk with us. The journey is long. A reading from Romans 15. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, in accordance with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Dear God, who accepts us graciously, open our hearts to accept others, regardless of their skin tone. Lift up those who have been affected by racism and strengthen them so they can rise above it. Help us to accept our neighbors and live in harmony together, Remind those who have hatred in their hearts that we were created in your image. With your guidance, we're closer to ending the fight against racism. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, my name is Isatu, and I'm your host. I'm a senior at Northwest High School, and I'm also a social justice intern here at Trinity. The theme for the month is Racism 101. Racism is a very current topic we are dealing with as a country right now, and we're introducing this theme to help people understand what it is and ways we can learn to combat it. On today's episode, we interviewed Trinity member Amber Bullock and her husband, Jerry Bullock. They described what it's like to grow up Black in America and how it progressed over the years and how it affected them. Good morning. Hey, Pastor Bonnie, how are you? Good, how are you, Jerry? Good, good. And Amber, how long have you been at Trinity? Oh, about nine years now, and I'm actually on a cell group I sit with your um, with your mother, I believe. Matamata. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm Amber Bullock. Um, Jerry and I have um, been married officially as of tomorrow, eleven years. Happy um, anniversary! Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm originally from uh, California, from the San Francisco, Oakland Bay area. I've been, however, in the DC area for a number of years. Um, I've been here since 1984, so most of my adult life. Um, 
I was definitely raised in a very different situation than Jerry was being from, from California, but that does not mean that I did not experience racism. Um, most of it was very covert um, and very subtle, but it definitely was there. And from the first time I was called the N-word when I was in about third grade, it definitely put a mark on me. So I can talk a little bit more about that. But um, uh, occupation-wise, I worked in public health as a community health educator for a number of years, about 35 years plus. And then about five or six years ago, I decided to do something a little different. And what I'm currently doing is I'm designing kitchen and bathrooms as an interior designer. What about you, Jerry? Uh, I, uh, I grew up in the South. Uh, I left to go to college, uh, went to college in the South and uh, was commissioned as an army officer. Uh, spent almost uh, four years on active duty. I uh, was a lieutenant, then a captain in the army. I spent uh, 13 months in Korea, three months on the DMZ and uh, 10 months on a missile site down in the Southwest part of the country. Uh, <clears throat> I uh, went to law school after getting out of the army Joined the Justice Department um, really as an intern when I was uh, second year law school and stayed on. I worked in law enforcement my entire career uh, at the Justice Department, U.S. Marshal Service for 16 years and then in the Inspector General's office um, for the rest of my career. And uh, met Amber uh, 11 years ago now. And, uh, um, best thing that's happened to me in these years. I think he's been a little modest. Mm -hmm. um, he was also a, a U.S. Marshal. He was appointed by President Carter at a very young age. He was only 28, 29 years old when he was appointed, which he would think he was one of the youngest of uh, a U.S. Federal Marshal, which is a pretty significant uh, position. Uh, and um, we also are the uh, proud grandparents of two grandchildren. Um, Michaela is eight years old. She was the first. And now we have a three-month-old grandson, Kamal. Uh, one of the things we really liked uh, about his name, Kamal Patrick, is that it means quiet warrior. And uh, we can talk more about the grandchildren, but when we think about the future and our hopes for you know, both our grandchildren, um, you know, we're in, we're in very challenging times, and this is going to be really bore out by their experiences and what they're going to have to deal with going forward. So describe the era you grew up in. I grew up in, a, uh, in I was born in San Francisco. I was, um, my parents, when I was nine years old, moved us out to a, a suburb area, uh, Concord, California. And we were warriors in the sense, or I should say pioneers, because there were very, very few minority uh, individuals in our community. Uh, out of a community of 90,000, there were probably 300 um, people of color, Blacks, uh, Koreans, other Asians. Um, and so it was a very much of a challenge coming from a diverse you know, city at, such as San Francisco and moving out to this all white community, you know, per se. Um, and academically, it was good for us. Um, you know, we had a lovely home and all of that. 
but I was made very aware very quickly that I was different, that I was not wanted. In my high school, there were only nine black students. And in my class, there were only two of us that graduated in 1974. Um, so it impacted me very, very early on. People weren't up in your face and, and you know, per se all the time, but we were always meant to feel, those of us who were, who were black, we were meant to feel that we were inferior, that academically we could not exceed, succeed. I had a counselor tell me that um, I should really take the general track, general education or vocational track classes because I would never go any further than high school. Or did I prove him wrong? <laughs> um, so because in, our parents made sure and because there were so few of us, you know, in the community, we really bonded together our various families. And to this day, those are my, my lifetime friends, even though we live in different places across the country now. Uh, but uh, it, was a, it was a struggle and it often meant our parents having to go up and talk to the counselors and make sure that we weren't put in the remedial classes, that we were put in the college prep courses. Um, my brother had a very high IQ they tried to keep him out of the advanced classes to the point where my parents had to go to the school board. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we were dealing with. Um, we were coined as being affirmative action babies or kids, and that the only reason they were letting us do certain things was because of they had to fit, you know, meet numbers or quotas. So that's the struggle that um, I started out with and it really continued even through college because there was always sort of the second look. Um, and especially when we were in a situation where we were some of the very few, you know, in the classes or, you know, whatever the situation might be. That's a really interesting phrase, the second look. I haven't, I haven't heard that before. Could you say a little more about that? Uh, it, it, it's interesting, in, in my situation, I'm, I'm light-skinned, so sometimes people didn't quite know what I was until I started to, to, to talk or talk about my family. They made an assumption that, you know, maybe I was, I was white or I was mixed or, you know, not to say that I'm not mixed because many black folks are mixed. I mean, that's who we are. Um, but in terms of who I identify with, I, I'm a black woman. Uh, but there was always this second look like, oh, you're one of them. Um, <laughs> and then I was being rated on a very different scale as compared to what their assumption was, was that I was, that I was possibly white. My mother was even lighter skinned than me. And in fact, the, the family nickname for her was milk bottle. <laughs> but so she went through even more than I did, you know. And so when our family traveled, because we were different skin complexions and, and tones and hues, uh, there was often the, um, you know, oh, an interracial family. <laughs> no, we were a black family, but it's, it's how we were perceived. And then once, uh, I'll never forget when we were returning from a, a trip from a family car trip out to Missouri to visit my grandparents. On the way back, we stopped in Oklahoma at a restaurant. And my mother and I went in first and the waitress or the receptionist was very courteous, you know, courteous to us. And then my brother, who was darker than myself, and my father um, came in and 
the whole atmosphere just changed. It's like you could tell that they just froze. They did serve us, but they didn't want to serve us. And the stares and the looks and the, you know, all of that was, was very, very real. And that was 1973, that, that particular year. My, my situation was uh, a lot different in that, uh, you know, I was born into, um, grew up in a segregated society, totally segregated. Um, the town had, a, uh, had two water fountains at the uh, city hall. Um, one had colored, uh, the other had white. And the theater um, was segregated. You couldn't sit um, in the main part of the theater. Blacks had to sit at the, uh, in the balcony. And uh, maybe three or four years ago, I went back with my daughter and uh, my granddaughter, and I showed them where there was even a separate um, ticket counter. Uh, the theater had, it was a brick theater, and they had bricked in the, um, the little entrance there or the, or the window where the separate uh, ticket counter was, but the evidence of it is still there to the, today. Oh, the Dairy Queen uh, too. Yeah, the Dairy Queen uh, just did not serve Blacks at all. You just could not go there. They opened it. Uh, it was a big deal. Uh, and they had a window, a separate window, uh, where, where Blacks could go around on the side. And that was still there at the time. I got to show it to my granddaughter. We drove through and uh, I told her, I said, you know, you had to walk up. You couldn't go in the place. Uh, there was no drive-through back then. But uh, you could see where it had been had been boarded up. And this was in 2016, 2017, 2017. Um, I was fortunate in that my my both uh, my mother and my grandmother were teach school teachers. The schools were segregated, so in a way, <clears throat> it was uh, uh, you know we'd have never been accepted in a school um, but in a way I was fortunate in that because my mother and grandmother were teachers uh, I could sort of navigate the education system in a way that just an average uh, black child in the, in the community could not they all got we all got good educations in the black schools um, but I had access to you know books that teachers used to teach um, I always had reading material <clears throat> to this day. I read like nonstop. If I couldn't read, I just, I don't know how I could, could make it. Um, I, I, every spare minute that I have, if I'm not working, if I'm not physically doing something. I'm sitting somewhere here at the house and reading. Uh, and that was my world. I knew at um, around eight years old that I did not want to stay in that community. Um, a U.S. highway, U.S. highway, 80 went through uh, my hometown. I read maps and I realized that a state highway could take you to the state's border, but a U.S. highway could take you everywhere. And U.S. 80 went from St. Simon's Island, uh, not St. Simon's Island, but from uh, south of from Savannah all the way to San Diego. And so the each day when I came home from school, I would look both ways when we crossed U.S. 80, and I would just I knew something better was beyond where I was, and I couldn't wait to get there. But I managed to, you know, graduate from high school with good grades, went to college, um, had an ROTC scholarship. So if you're just given an opportunity, if people will stop hating you just for a minute, <laughs> or a few minutes, or a day, um, just a ray of good can, can come from that. Um, <clears throat> 
you know, in terms of when you first became aware of race, I mean, it was it was uh, ever part of your life. There was never a time when you weren't a, a aware of race. Um, the the town was segregated from a housing standpoint. Even though my parents and my dad uh, was a, you know he was a professional, he worked uh, at a federal government job in town there. But you couldn't live anywhere. Um, you could live in a certain part of the town, and in, in the south is called across the tracks. Uh, and those the, the tracks literally separated uh, uh, life growing up in the south. And to show you how racism uh, and segregation has an enduring effect. Uh, when my mom died, um, we, uh, you know, we ended up selling her house. They, my parents had bought the house for $10,000 and it sold for $56,000. It was a 62 year old house. And you could imagine, I mean, that's really a limited growth in value. Uh, especially when you tack on added taxes over the years, um, that the taxes themselves probably ate into whatever increase, you know, in value that the house was. And it was near a railroad track, just across the tracks, a similar community, and this is an all brick home now, um, similar homes, some of them were not all black, were selling for uh, $100,000 more or even greater in some instances. And so you've got to just take a snapshot in time later in life and realize that that's an enduring thing. You know, racism, uh, segregation is an enduring thing. My, uh, my brother, and I only learned this the last year or so of my, my mom's uh, life. My brother was seven years younger than I am. So he came along, um, much later, I was gone. I was away from home when he was growing up. He was, you know, a child basically when I left. And uh, he was was taunted. The schools integrated after I left. I think in 1971 or 1972. And um, so he he went through middle school and high school in a in an integrated environment. And a white kid uh, who was the son of a prominent person in the town just taunted him with the N-word every day. Um, and my brother was very smart. And he just, he basically just left after the 11th grade and went to college. Uh, and, you, and you realize he was denied a, a, just a normal high school education, you know, that you would you know, participate in sports or maybe uh, be on a debate team or maybe do anything. He just hated to be there. He just didn't want to be there. You'll never ever, recover that, you know, you'll never ever get that, that back, that experience. I mentioned the, uh, the water fountain and the theater. In 1964, the city decided when it was clear that the federal laws were going to, you know, require public accommodations to be accessible to all people. <clears throat> the city decided, the city pool now that everybody's tax dollars you know, went to keep up and pay the maintenance and pay the people to work on the pool and city people to clean the pool. They just decided no pool. So they fill the city pool up with sand. And I've shown my kids, there's this nice grassy area out there, but if you were to dig up like a foot, there's a, there are the boundaries, the outline of a pool in there. And if you were to dig up the rest of the sand, the pool is still there. But if 
we have to integrate. If we have to allow blacks, and Hispanics, or other people to come, we just won't have a pool. It, it means that much to us. Well, they could afford to put a pool at their house. So, you know, that's what happened. They took the kids out of the public schools when they were integrated and they went to these Christian schools. Um, and, and it's still that way today. So, you know, that's how deep-seated it was then, and it's really not any different now. The strangest looks when Amber first went down there with me were mostly from everybody, really. It wasn't just, just whites, it was everybody. They just looked at her like she was an alien. <laughs> you know, people would, I would park the car and people, people working in a store would not pay attention to me in the store. They would just peer through the glass to look at her sitting in the car. Um, it was just, you know, the strangest thing. The, 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 the racism is more, um, it got more um, prevalent, I think, as time went on. It's now part of the uh, fabric of America. You know, how you're treated when um, you buy a home, for example. You know, there was an article in the New York Times recently on how appraisers devalue houses when they go to a neighborhood if they know a black family lives there to the extent that some people have whites come, you know, white friends come to their house to be there when the appraiser comes. And they, they take away things that are artifacts in their homes that will, would indicate mm -hmm. that a black family lives here. So you have to really get rid of your existence almost to get fairness. You can't get fairness right. When I sold my townhome in Silver Spring, you know, 10, 11 years ago, when Jerry and I married, um, I had to take down all the ethnic images, all the photos. I had to basically de-black the house to get a decent selling price on it. And fortunately, I got a full price offer, but it was because of all the effort that went into staking it and making it neutralized so that it would be acceptable to, you know, white buyers, you know, potentially. And actually that's who bought it was a white gentleman. Um, but, you know, we're, we, we were just having this discussion um, about our house now. If we were in the same situation, we wouldn't do it. We're not gonna de-black our house. We're just not gonna do that. You know, either people want our home or they don't want it. Um, so there's just some things that we're just not gonna put up with anymore. But the system is still set up where um, just behind the scenes, you get um, impacted negatively. Um, you know, it's not a policy, it's not anything in writing, um, but you just know it's there. You're constantly aware of it. It's the uh, reaction and seeing what's in their eyes. And it's that second look I was talking about earlier. Yeah. And, you know, if their hearts are not there, you, the eyes tell a lot. Body language tells a lot. And that's, you know, as black people, we get used to it, but it doesn't mean that we're just, you know, we're, at this point, I, I'm just tired, tired of it, you know. Um, and I think a lot of us are at this stage. Yeah. And you had to, you know, growing up, <clears throat> what it was like raising children, you know, your parents always told you to be cautious. Uh, you couldn't just really go anywhere you wanted to go. Um, I saw my first Ku Klux Klan rally, I was about six or seven years old, uh, on the U.S. Highway, U.S. 29 down in Georgia. We were going to my grandparents' house for Thanksgiving, and the Klan was basically directing cars off the road for a, quote, rest stop, 
Well, what they were doing was directing you off to give drivers coffee over the holidays because there were more cars on the highway around the Thanksgiving holiday. And it was a recruiting effort. It was to give you, you know, direct you off the highway. It was almost like a traffic stop. And, uh, you know, they would give you a, a, a pamphlet. Uh, if you were black, they weighed you on. Um, so that was just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And um, even today, there have been several inc incidents around that same geographic area. So that racism hasn't gone away. Those, were the, those are now the grandkids of the people who were doing that Klan traffic stop. And they're probably, they probably couldn't do a Klan traffic stop today as easily, but they might, they could. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't have a lot of, uh, I don't have a lot of uh, belief that <clears throat> um, they will live in a different world. I don't. I mean, the place where they, they are growing up right now, um, the citizens today regularly use the N-word against that city's sports team. The, the, the minority members on the sports team, the, the citizens, when, you're, when, they're, when the players are leaving the baseball field, for example, this is a professional team in a northeastern city, uh, they taunt their black players not the other team's black players, not that you should do it to any team's black players. If you use the N-word on your own players, that's a pretty powerful statement of your hatred. Uh, so they're going to be around this. They're around it now, really. I mean, they're probably not old enough to yet appreciate it, but they, go, they will go to a game sooner or later and they will see it themselves. So I don't... I don't expect much. You know, one question you asked is has, how has faith helped you cope with, with racism? I, I think the way I have a little different perspective than Gary does. He, he says it really hasn't. In my case, I feel that it has. And what is making me more um, hopeful is what I see in terms of Black Lives Matter and what I see with who's participating because hate and racism is generational. We can go. It's a, it's a endless cycle. Unless an individual decides they're going to stop doing that, they're going to go ahead and look at things differently than what their parents told them or their uncle told them or, you know, whatever their, their situation was. So I am hopeful when I do see more, you know, white folks out there marching and protesting and just maybe that will cut it off. Maybe that will end that cycle, at least in their generational chain. And if that can happen there, that's very helpful. I think the other thing that makes me hopeful is that we are becoming truly a mixed society. There are a lot more intergeneration, interracial families than there ever have been. That was something that was very much frowned upon. Um, from our perspective as black people, it was, it was you, you don't want to really, you know, have someone who's white that you're going to marry. And part of that was protectionism, you know, it really was. Um, but it also was because it was illegal, you know, for whites and blacks to marry. And in some states, it's still in the books. It's still there, you know. So the bottom line is, is that I think as our community becomes much more um, intermarrying, I think that's also going to have an impact too. Because our son-in-law is white. And the one thing that's very clear to him, it may have not been clear at first, <laughs> but he has two black children. 
you know, and that's, he's got to protect that. And so I think he was sort of apolitical on issues before. I don't think he's apolitical anymore. He can't be. He cannot be. Yeah. Thank you both so much for your time today. Well, thank you. For your honesty, for your stories, and for your witness. Revisiting our monthly theme, Racism 101. Racism has been ingrained in this country's history from the very beginning. People of color, specifically black people, have had to endure many setbacks and judgments solely based on the color of their skin. When Amber mentions the second look, she says what a lot of black people are thinking. Many people are quick to make assumptions of black people based on hurtful stereotypes or pure hatred. In the scripture, God says, accept one another, then, just as God accepted you. We are all children of God, and we were all created equally. Racism is just another unnecessary divider preventing togetherness among God's people. All of God's people must check themselves and others when they know someone being racist, whether it's a crude comment or a stereotypical joke. We must all come together to fight racism in all forms. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on, with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk on.